The transition from school or higher education into the workplace is daunting for everybody. But when you have a learning disability, it brings an added layer of challenges and obstacles that we have to navigate. From the decision to disclose our disability in the workplace, to the types of assisted technology we may need to help us do the job, or the self-doubt and worry we may have about our ability to do that job, and to make sure we fit into the workforce, are just some of the issues that we have to deal with. Our guest today has spent over 20 years as a senior manager in human resource and management consultancy in both the public and private sectors in London. Brian, you've had a long history in HR that led you to work and advocate with those with dyslexia, including writing a chapter in the book by the late, great Sylvia Moody, Dyslexia in the Workplace. Um, So how did you end up working in this space? Mm. It actually in a sense, flowed naturally from my work in HR. Um, I, I was also doing some uh, part-time work with a view to transitioning away. I've been doing HR for 20 years, and I'd started working one day a week for a mental health charity, uh, Mind. And whilst I was working at Mind, I met a young man who was volunteering there who was uh, dyslexic and uh, dyspraxic. Um, he had a full-time job with, with a mainstream employer uh, and um, very friendly and easygoing, outgoing guy. And, and after about six months, I noticed that he wasn't his usual self. He was depressed and, uh, you know, a bit irritable and things like that. So we sat down and chatted and it, it, it turned out that he was being discriminated against quite badly uh, at his workplace because of his dyslexia. Uh, now, at that point, I think we're talking about uh, 20-something years ago, um, at that point in my life, I, I knew very little about dyslexia. Perhaps I had a, a lay and slightly misguided understanding, thinking that it was just about literacy. Um, and really, I felt that I could help him more through my understanding of employment law. And the Disability Discrimination Act was around at that time which is now being superseded in the UK by the Equalities Act, uh, protecting uh, people with disabilities in the workplace. So I, I took up his case, obviously, on, on a sort of a pro bono basis and helped represent him at various meetings. Fortunately, he was in a trade union and trade unions in this country will provide support, including legal support, if they feel it's merited, right the way up to employment tribunals. So we met with this trade union on a number of occasions. Uh, I helped the trade union articulate some elements of his case. Um, When the case went to the employment tribunal, uh, the tribunal ordered an independent expert to comment on whether or not the employer had made reasonable adjustments. Reasonable adjustments being under the uh, DDA uh, and the Equality Act, um, steps to mitigate the difficulties caused by the disability in the workplace. And uh, the, the, you know, we claimed that they hadn't. Uh, they claimed that they had. Um, so the, the tribunal um, asked that an independent expert look at what they had done and do an independent report for the court. 
uh, as it turned out, that independent expert was uh, Sylvia Moody, Dr. Moody. And uh, I, yep, just one of totally serendipity. <laughs> uh, I, I went with um, the, the colleague who I was helping, Francis is his first name, and um, I went with him to uh, meet Sylvia uh, as much as anything to help him articulate and also because he was only 21 at the time and he was quite afraid to see this monstrous independent expert Dr. Moody sort of thing and it all scared him quite a bit and I find since that you know these formal meetings that many dyslexic people will have to have with great experts in the sky can be very scary situations. So I went with Francis and um, Dr. Moody was kindness and empathy itself, as well as totally professional. She was totally objective, did a rigorous diagnostic assessment and looked at the reasonable adjustments, but nevertheless put us both completely at our ease. She explained that her duty was to the court to report independently on what had and hadn't been done rather than to favour the employer or to favour us. Anyway, cut long story short, Dr. Moody did a report which uh, showed that the employer had not even begun to meet their uh, statutory duty uh, to make reasonable adjustments. Um, that report went to uh, me and Francis's trade union and the court, of course. And um, faced with that, uh, we then negotiated with the employer. Uh, he didn't want to go back. Reinstatement is open to a court in these circumstances. But because of the horrible way, the, the discriminatory way, that the employer had uh, dealt with uh, Francis, he didn't want to go back to a place like that. So we negotiated a substantial uh, monetary compensation uh, for the discrimination that the employer had done. Um, once the case was over and there was no longer any issue of conflict of interest, out of the blue, I had um, a telephone call from Dr. Moody uh, in which she said, I really think that you advocated wonderfully for this young man. Clearly, I couldn't talk to you uh, about it whilst the case was live, but now that I can. Um, and she said, you know, have you ever thought of working in this field? And I said, well, not really. You know, I'm an HR person by trade, by training. Um, she said, well, let's have lunch. And we had lunch and she talked to me and she said, if you did the following qualifications, yeah, uh, sort of uh, a certificate and a diploma, postgrad diploma. Uh, then you'd be equipped to bring all the skills you had when you first met me, but obviously with considerably more understanding and knowledge of dyslexia to bear. And she said there are all sorts of opportunities where someone with your skill set could help individual dyslexic people. Uh, and I thought, well, that's great. I enjoyed meeting Dr. Moody. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the advocacy. It seemed a natural progression. I was 40, 41 at the time. I'd done 20 years in HR. And I, even though I enjoyed it, I didn't fancy another 20 years. So it was sort of a male menopause career change type of thing. And that's what led to me coming into it. So over Best that, thing I ever did. Wow. And over that 20 years before you met Dr. Moody and had that, um, client that you advocated for, you never knew yes. about dyslexia or you'd known a little I, bit I about it? 
Yes, I knew about it in the way that, you know, a, a lay person might know about dyspraxia or whatever. I knew very little. I had misapprehensions. I, I'd heard about it as word blindness. I'd heard about it as, uh, I actually had had one employee who was dyslexic a few years before, uh, but our understanding at that time was that dyslexia was about poor literacy and poor spelling. Yeah. Uh, and we no real understanding about, you know, issues around uh, sequencing, structuring, and no idea at all about the uh, emotional consequences of growing up with dyslexia and all the obstacles that are put in the dyslexic person's way and the emotional and psychological fallout from that as well. So I had a very, very, very limited understanding of dyslexia until I met Dr. Moody. Wow. So it was like 20 years of blindness in a way until you met her and had the yep. case. Yep. So I'm not religious. <laughs> Sorry? said, I'm not religious, but I would use the word an epiphany. Yeah. Especially being in the yeah. HR industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And so over the last 20 years, since you met Sylvia and you've been working in the space, um, yes. have you seen a lot of changes or because you hadn't known about it before and then you learned about it? Um, mm -hmm. Is it hard to gauge if there's been changes because you didn't know about it and now you know about it? <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah. Sorry. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no unknowns and no unknowns. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, there have, have been some changes. I mean, I, I, I think um, legislation has been the biggest change. Um, the Disability Discrimination Act in the UK uh, followed by the pulling together of different strands in the Equality Act 2010, I would say have been the biggest change in the last 20 years. Not because I believe that solutions are necessarily only possible through legislation, I have to say that, but because legislation can often act as a pump primer, it, it can set a social context that uh, leads to change. So j just by way of example, uh, by making uh, failure to make reasonable adjustments uh, a statutory offence, mm. as it were, by, by putting an obligation on employers to make reasonable adjustments for people who are classified as disabled under UK law, and most dyslexic people will be, um, it sets a particular framework that employers have to operate within. When you then have precedent, you know, when you then have uh, employment tribunal cases which go to employment appeals tribunals, those precedents are then binding on every employer. Well, not every employer, but it's only two people. It's not. There are certain exemptions, but let's say 90% of employed people are then bound by that statute and the precedent-setting cases which actually draw on that. So it, it, it opened the door considerably to me and other people talking to employers about their dyslexic employees. 
before, if there'd been no statutory obligation, you would have been relying on persuasion. When there's a statutory obligation, you can, depending on the employer, and I'll tell you what I mean by depending on the employer in a moment, because I think it's really important, but depending on the employer, you had a stick as well as a carrot. Mm. Now, I don't recommend a stick. I certainly don't recommend a stick as your opening gambit, as it were, with an employer. But what I mean is that in, in, in 20 years almost, I, I found that there are three broad categories of employer. There are those employers who are dyslexia, we're not just dyslexia aware, but who are disability aware and who are predisposed for organizational cultural reasons to do the right thing. And therefore, when you meet them, they're meeting you as someone who can help them to help their employees. So you, in a sense, are pushing at an open door and you can bring in perhaps more radical or more wide-ranging solutions than might be possible. The second category are those employers who are ignorant of dyslexia, but by which I mean they, they, they knew what I knew 25 years ago. They think it's about spelling or something like that. Yeah. Um, they're ignorant but neutral, and therefore you have two options. You have the statutory, well, it's your legal obligation type thing, but you also have, well, you know, you're, you're missing the business case here. You're running reputational risk. Uh, you're not getting the best out of your employees. So you've got a, a, a much wider range of persuasive powers that might go from there's a business case for doing this, reputational risk and statute. And, you know, you start at the, the, the more user-friendly end of that spectrum, but you have the scope to move up it if, if, if necessary. And then there's the third category of employers. And I'm afraid that's the category of employers who go, I'm not a charity. I'm in this business to make a profit. Therefore, I will treat everybody the same. Sure, you know, this is all ignorant and it's an inverted commas, but... Uh, I'll treat everybody the same, sure, but if this dyslexic person can't produce as much as the 10 other people in the team, or if this dyslexic employer employee can't produce work of the same quality as they would define it, then I don't want to know. And if that means sacking them for capability, then that's what I'm going to do. Clearly, unacceptable and and you know on a few occasions I've actually had to wield the statutory argument with them and we've fallen out big time uh, and I don't mind admitting that because you know, if it comes down to a client every time that I've gone into a workplace to, to talk about reasonable adjustments even though the employer is paying me I see the dis I've always seen the dyslexic employee as my client not the employer yeah. and some employers have been backward in trying to pressure me in the past a minority i have to say but some from that category three uh trying to pressure me into saying well look you know this is never going to work out can you just not do a report saying this person can't do the job so what has uh, your job been when um yeah it, it's i mean 
two or three aspects to it. I mean, one has been um, doing workplace needs assessments. And that's where you look at uh, the individual, look at their job description, look at their uh, diagnostic assessment, and map the diagnostic assessment onto the job description. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important. Too many workplace needs assessments in the UK are general. They've got a little off-the-shelf package of, oh, give, give them a computer with, with, with Dragon and with text help and give them six hours of strategy training and we'll all live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And really that's nonsense. That's, you know, that's saying one size fits all. Yeah. And of course, one size doesn't fit all. You've got a number of variables. The two principal variables being every diagnostic assessment is different and every person's experience of dyslexia, in my opinion, is different. That's right. And secondly, when you overlay job on that, the environment, the culture, and the specific demands of the job, to say that one size fits all is is clearly nonsense sort of thing. So um, my job has been to be doing workplace needs assessments, using those criteria, as it were. So the diagnostic um, assessment, and, sorry, what was it? The diagnostic assessment? Then you look at the... Uh, right, the, right. There, there are two assessments. Two, in the UK, there are two assessments that, that you need in all of this. The diagnostic assessment is the assessment that says, this person is dyslexic, yep. and here's why, basically. And that, until about eight or nine years ago, could only be done by uh, chartered psychologists. Mm, It can now be done by chartered psychologists and people like me who are qualified teachers of dyslexia and have done postgraduate qualification in diagnostic assessment so that we can use the psychometric tests. Mm -hmm. So the diagnostic assessment is saying, you are dyslexic and here are... Your, here, here are your pattern of strengths and weaknesses. Like, you know, compared to a standard measure, you have uh, 43% of the working memory of uh, a non-dyslexic person. Yep. Problematic sometimes because when psychologists do it, they often forget that a person's reading about themselves when they read about this report and saying things like, you know, three standard deviations below the norm. Mm-hmm. It's not a very kind thing to say, as it were. No. Um, better, better reports try to uh, look at the whole thing holistically and look at the person's pattern of strengths and less strong areas. So all school psychologists will give a dyslexic person, uh, pages and pages of psychometric testing results, and you think it would occur to them that you know they may also have difficulties like dyscalculia or numerous difficulties, and even reading those reports. I don't think I've read a person yet who can read the old school reports, and I could only read them after I'd done the postgraduate diploma. So what does that tell you? Anyway, that's the diagnostic assessment. Yeah. Workplace needs assessment is going into the workplace reading the diagnostic assessment so that you have an understanding of the pattern of strengths and weaknesses, and then overlaying that on a job description and person specification. And that's where my HR comes in, because uh, 
in HR, I, I did extensive training in, in job analysis and job evaluation. And here you're looking at the knowledge, skills, and experience requirements of the job, sometimes summarizes the competencies that are required for the job. And you're saying, okay, well, if someone has a poor uh, short-term and working memory, for example, uh, there are certain tasks like sitting in a box and giving information to everybody who runs up to that box and throws six bits of information at them in three seconds. That is not going to be a good fit even with reasonable adjustments. So it's looking at the job, looking at the diagnostic assessment and making recommendations for reasonable adjustments to mitigate the dyslexia in the performance of that job. Yeah. Doing a report and then presenting the report. I, I, I always encouraged and usually, but not always, obtained um, from the employer. You would have the line manager, but also someone from HR and the individual dyslexic person and myself. And you know that's the group that should be project managing the reasonable adjustments into place. Um, and it's important to have the HR person on that panel as well, because often line managers are driven by considerations of performance and output. You know, if they're in a management by objectives or performance management culture, then really, although they may be paying lip service to, oh, I know he or she is dyslexic, uh, let's make these adjustments. But when they see the adjustments and they see the person might have to be released for three hours a week or eight weeks to have their strategy training, they, they can balk at that. Mm. And I count as an independent consultant and say, no, you will do this. So I would get the HR person on side before a meeting like that and then the HR person would have the authority to say well you know that's the law if we don't do that we're breaking the law type of thing. Ah, so that's when you bring your legislation in so that's where you're doing your yes. advocacy work for the employee and you can bring that in yes. employer so they're not breaking the law. Yes you can do it that way or if you have a an understanding HR person uh, an HR is in a powerful position within an organization. Sometimes it is, sometimes it, it, it isn't, but often HR will have an executive role so that line managers aren't trusted to make the HR decisions. So if you've got the HR person there and they're saying, yes, or if I'm addressing them, but here's the report and looking occasionally at the line manager and the HR person is nodding and going, yes, yes, of course, of course, then you, know, you, you, you back the recalcitrant line manager into a corner so that he or she would be acting against the other three people in the meeting. Yeah. Uh, if they try to you can't have release. So, you, you know, persuasion, I guess. Yeah. And so what type of reasonable adjustments um, occur? You said some strategy training. So in Australia, we don't have um, any of what you described right now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm at all and it's something that the foundation's hoping to develop over time but I mean people can't really even disclose in the workplace so you know the opportunity to have someone come into the workplace and do a workplace assessment would be just amazing. Um, so what type of reasonable yes. adjustments um, do people have in the UK at the moment? Mm -hmm. Apart from um, your text-to-speech, your dragon and, you know, your basic ones, what other yes. ones would you have? Well, I, I, I always describe and describe reasonable adjustments 
to all the stakeholders involved, uh, HR, the person as well, uh, as, as a stool. And I, I did that not just to remember that there are three categories of reasonable adjustment, but also to illustrate that if you only introduce two of them, like a stool with, it'll fall over. So in a sense, it's integrated and, and holistic rather than just one, two, and three. Uh, like and you can leave it. Like a stool? It's a stool? Like a stool. Yep. Stool? Like uh, a with three legs. Three legs, like a stool. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with <laughs> three legs. Uh, so that if you pull one leg off, the whole thing will fall down, you see. That was the yes. analogy. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a language cultural difference there. <laughs> I think it was just I couldn't quite hear you over the um, over the computer with your accent, which <laughs> is a bit hard then. Right, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. those are the ones. You know, there are certain vowel sounds that people in Northern Ireland say quite differently from people in England and so on. Yeah. And mm. um, the stool, the three legs rather, would be a specific dyslexia aware training for the individual and I'll tell you a bit about each one of these three in a moment when I list them yeah so that's that's one a specific training for the individual the second one is assistive technology and the third one is organizational change uh, I'll start with the last one because I said organizational change and it's perhaps the, the least clear of those three. And it's the one that um, most people miss. Uh, you know, most, most practitioners who aren't trained sort of thing. And I suppose I only know, think about it and put it into my practice because of my HR background. There's no point in training someone and giving them kit mm. if their managers are discriminated against them and if their colleagues keep thinking that they're lazy or a passenger or careless or whatever. So unless you do the whole thing holistically and have all three legs, you're really not doing much at all. Yeah. The, the, the third one, the sort of uh, organizational change or culture modification is about inculcating awareness within the organization of what dyslexia is and what it is not, including training, so that you understand that a dyslexic person who did something successfully three times in a row might get it wrong the fourth time because they're under stress or they've been working two hours without a break or whatever. So it's understanding things like that so that you don't judge or come to wrong opinions of dyslexic people. So we're talking about dyslexia awareness. We're talking about that awareness leading to the individual manager and HR to understand how certain systems and procedures might be dyslexia unfriendly. So that, for example, the number of times I've seen managers go, really? And, you know, having been a manager myself for a long time, I'm sure before I did my training, I did it too. You're hurry, you're under stress, you're seeing your own boss, this is the non-dyslexic manager, in, in 15 minutes and you need lots of information. So you run up to the dyslexic and you go, I want that and that and that and that and that and that and I need it in 10 minutes. A pretty dyslexic person hasn't even got beyond the first two things that you said. Mm. But if you're English sort of manager or even if you're a nice manager and they want to help you, or if they're new and they haven't had a proper induction or if they've been told that their performance is a bit dodgy, 
then they're not going to go, hold on, hold on, could you stop, please, and tell me that again? Or could you put it in writing? Uh, the number of people I've seen who are afraid to do that. Um, and therefore, they think, oh, did he say that? So maybe they've got two out of ten of the instructions and a vague notion of the other eight. And they try to do it, and they give it to the person. And of course, six of the ten are wrong. And the manager's looking and going, that's nothing like what I asked you to do. What on earth is going on? Now, obviously, you can't be dealing with that uh, as an advocate coming in on a, an instance-by-instance basis or a case-by-case basis. You've got to inculcate the sort of awareness that appreciates that there are things that you may have been doing as a manager for years and years and years, and it's you know in your pattern of behavior. Get this and this and this and this done for me now, please. Thank you. Some people, in fact, you know, like to. It's a sort of unconscious bragging. Look how efficient I am. Look how quick I am. You two do that, 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 and that. You ever watch these police procedurals on TV now? And they're bringing you know more and more high-profile senior officers in. Sometimes they're women. Sometimes they're still the traditional men, but the sign of the, the really good new chief inspector who's setting the world on fire is that within 30 seconds, they've briefed a room full of police officers on a hundred things to do. And I think for men, that's what men may do. I think since they're trying to bring more women into high profile positions in these crime dramas, they show them to be at least as efficient as men by instructing dozens of people with multiple outputs and streams of activity over very short times. Yeah. I just hope that none of the police officers in these dramas are dyslexic <laughs> because, you know, absolutely. So, so the first leg in the stool then is um, to inculcate awareness within the organization of what dyslexia is, to inculcate an awareness of the problems that it will throw up, but to do so at a level that enables them to review and modify procedures themselves at that strategic level, rather than actually rely on me or another advocate coming in and going, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. Oh, no, you shouldn't do that. They, they hopefully, at the end of awareness training, should be able to review these things and get it right themselves and also give permission to the dyslexic person to say, when you give me instructions in that way, it blows my mind and I won't be able to do it. Could you instead give me instructions in writing half an hour before you want to meet me, if possible? We all know there'll be times when it's not possible, but could you, as good practice, do it this way so that I've had the chance to look at them, make any notes, don't understand that, that would be difficult, blah, 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 and then we meet. And then you can go, what about number one? What about number two? And I'll be prepared rather than trying to write down things and, and not getting the whole story. So that's the first leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is strategy training. Or sorry, not strategy training, but specific dyslexia skills training, which may include strategy training. And I guess that's in, 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 in two parts. One is specific skills. So, you know, I would help people with uh, memory skills, but we would put it within the context of dyslexia. And, you know, we, we would explain things like, uh, what's the difference between working memory, short-term memory, and long-term memory? 
And how can you ensure that if you were, for example, studying a document, that you don't read it four times before it actually sinks in? And there's all sorts of stuff, including in Sandra's book uh, and Sylvia's books about, you know, skimming and, and, and highlighting and things like that. Uh, some people need to find out whether they're better listening and watching on screen to text and pausing. Uh, however, there are a variety of ways that you can capture information from written or um, IT text and be aware of the need to consolidate that information in long-term memory. Otherwise, it will be gone sort of thing. So that would be a specific skill that you would teach. Structuring reports would be another one. Uh, I sort of borrowed with Sylvia's permission. <laughs> She's got a really nice chapter on different types of business report. And they're essentially templates, but with a lot more flavor and insight into them. And I would work with people asking them to say, show me uh, the sorts of report they were asked to do. Talk to me about the difficulties they had with these reports. Uh, and then use approaches to report writing that address their particular difficulties. So those are examples of two specific uh, skills that you might use. Um, assistive technology, there, there are three or four main types in addition to what, what we have with tablets, you know, uh, sort of speech to text, text to speech, um, having a, a digital dictaphone to record meetings so that you can index the meeting and you don't have to rely on making long notes, which you won't be able to keep up with and which will divert your attention from actually listening to what's really happening. So, you know, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. I'm just trying to think, um, mind genius, you know, mind mapping sort of thing, turning lots of stuff into visuals. Not all these things work for all dyslexic people, but what you can do in your report is, and of course, secondly, not all of them will be useful in the jobs that people are doing. So it's, it's a matter of making the person familiar with the basic, most important pieces of assistive technology, perhaps uh, running through them with the person and their applications, and then giving them a couple of websites where they can find out and even trial the technology, and then see if together you can get a fit on the applicability of that piece of kit for the work that they are doing. So that would be the third leg of the stool. Importantly, um, the government pays for um, quite a bit of that. So the government typically would pay for 10 hours of skills training. Government would pay for nearly all the assistive technology. Wow. Uh, and I, so it helps, certainly. Over the years, they have uh, reduced their uh, ceilings on how much they will pay. So now they don't pay for what I would believe and what Sylvia would have believed and I think what Sandra would believe and what other experienced practitioners would believe would be the right amount of support. Uh, but at least they pay for perhaps... Half of it. Yeah. Important for NGOs, uh, important for charities who you know might want to help, 
but on very low budgets, uh, a typical program of reasonable adjustments for someone with moderate dyslexia in a moderately difficult job would probably be about five thousand pounds. Wow! And, Jeez. Having worked in a yeah, well, that's at London prices, mind you, but still, um, having worked in, in a number of charities, I mean, when our entire budget was only about £30,000, you might want to do it, but that would be very difficult. So the government assistance there uh, is very important in, in perhaps prompting well-intentioned managers in that first or second type of organization I mentioned to you, you know, the, the enthusiastically willing or the ignorant but willing to learn mm. uh, might make the difference. Um, some people as managers are very, I mean, in the National Health Service, for example, uh, I only got some people on board when they knew that they would have this five or six thousand pounds from the government because they said, I can't do it otherwise. You know, the, it's now at funding at ward level and, you know, that's for overtime so that I've got enough nurses on the ward. How can I spend it on uh, someone with dyslexia? Yeah. So the government help is almost certainly necessary in most cases. Interestingly enough, the people who were most enthusiastic to say, right, you're the expert, you know what you're doing, we'll do everything you've said, were some big corporations because they were, they were just awash with money, like Oracle, for example. Uh, you know, they just had so much money in their big campus that, that you know, when I said it cost about five or six thousand, you know, they were saying things like, is that all? <laughs> so the organizational context is hugely important. You know, the, the report that some people will grasp and pay for and say, get on with it. Others will go, we'd like to, but we can't afford it. And others will go, go away. We're not a charity. Uh, if they can do the job, we'll keep them. If they can't we kick them out yeah wow we just don't have anything like that in australia so for any Mm. hr people that might be listening to this podcast or um people with dyslexia in the workplace can you give them uh, any tips for um in the staff that might be struggling or for people that might be struggling out there that were listening um for any assistive technology or because a lot of people don't disclose. So um, things that they might be able to do if they can't disclose to their employer or Mm -hmm. companies that have listened to what you've said and might want to take some first steps in supporting staff that they may suspect are dyslexic, but they haven't said anything. Sure. Um, I think, before I answer that, I just I need to ask you a question. Okay. <laughs> what, what is the context within Australia for disability discrimination and employment law protection? Because if there's nothing, then it's very, very difficult. There is a question of, of, of disclosure over here as well, but I come to it presupposing the statutory protections that are in place. So I might say some unwise things unless I'm aware of the context within which people are working. Yeah. Um, There's different laws because we're broken up into states. um, Mm. There's different laws per state. Um, I don't know a huge Mm. amount. I just went to um, OH&S training the other week 
and so occupational mm-hmm. health and safety training. And we were talk- I actually asked this question yeah. around, you know, um, how would someone with a learning disability, we call it disability at the foundation, but the word is thrown around a lot, whether it's an impairment or disorder mm-hmm. or so um, like everywhere, it's not, the term is different everywhere you go. Um, so under the mm-hmm. Human Rights Act, in Victoria mm-hmm. and Australia, um, there can you can be taken to court, and I have known of people that haven't been given reasonable adjustments and have won in court. But it's a very great right. area in Australia. You do have to give reasonable adjustments mm-hmm. within the school, but you don't. Mm-hmm. But it's more grey within the workplace, and there's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So it's not like in the UK. Right. Okay. Um, are right here um there's obviously the statute and then there is precedent so that you know uh employment tribunals and employment appeal tribunals interpret individual cases where people believe they're being discriminated against and come to a finding and that finding is then binding on all other employers so is that the case between states in in australia in other words the people you mentioned who, who won their cases because they didn't have reasonable adjustments, presumably if they were in one state, would that just apply within that state or would it apply at federal level? Uh, uh, well, the person that I know of was in Victoria. So I don't, I think it depends on where you are. So I think if you disclose, yes. so if I had said to my employer, I'm dyslexic and I was open about it, and then I asked for reasonable adjustments and they didn't give it to me, then I could possibly yes. take them, I could take them to court. But then because mm. it's under the, the um, what we call the DSM-5 in Australia, which is the mental health, which is an um, is international, DSM-5 is the mental health. Yeah, so we fit under the mental health um, dictionary. Mental, I can't, you know what I'm talking about. I can't think of the actual name. Diagnostic Services Manual. That's it. Diagnostic Psychological Manual. Um, So we fit under that and it is classified as a learning disability. So I think if I disclosed Mm -hmm. it and they didn't give me reasonable adjustments and I could go to court over it. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be proven that it's a mental disability. So it's right. it's not as clear. I so see, on our website, we have got around disclosure and that under the, um, the Human Rights Act, we're talking mm-hmm. about the Human Rights Act because that is a federal act. And then under each yes, state, right. there's different acts that you need to be aware of depending on which state you live in. Because when Australia right. became okay. federalised, um, each state still wanted their own bit of legislation. So we have different acts depending on which, where you live in Australia. So, um, I, yeah, I, I couldn't say. It's definitely not like the UK where it's a lot more clear-cut. Um, no. But I do know that mm. some people have won court cases, but it's because mm. they've disclosed up front and then they haven't been, they have been performance managed and they've been able to clearly identify that they were performance managed and terminated because of their 
dyslexia. And, yes. Right. And, um, yeah. But even then, it was only because of the way that their lawyer supported showed that it was clear. So, yeah, you'd have to be careful. You'd yeah. have to have it very well documented. Uh, yes. No, that's, that's fine. Um, I, I mean, I thought about this a lot when I saw this, and, and, and it's sort of, sort of chicken and egg. It's, it's difficult. What would I say to employers? What would I say to individuals? Even in this country, um, I suppose it's not surprising, I'm sure in every country, people are often reluctant to disclose. I, I did a, a, a talk at uh, SOAS, the, the School of Oriental and African Studies at, at University College London some years ago uh, on, um, for a group of, of uh, master's students who just finished and they were all dyslexic, about 50 in all. Uh, and it was about, you know, um, starting and developing your career as a dyslexic postgraduate was the sort of theme of the talk. And um, I explained the pros and the cons of disclosure. And at the end of that, in the question and answer session, 50% of that group said, that's wonderful, that's really helpful, no one has told us that before, thank you. And the other 50% said, you're an idiot, you're a fool. If we disclose, we won't even get an interview. So everything you said is nonsense, we're still not disclosing. Mm. So the group, a group of intelligent, mature, dyslexic adults, we're split right down the middle. I'm not split down the middle. I'm unequivocal in the UK that you should disclose. Because if you don't, there are so many things that can happen in employment, like making the mistakes without reasonable adjustments that are likely to happen, uh, like being inducted, but not being able to get all the information in, and not being able to say that, and making mistakes, uh, having misunderstandings, and so on, so that in the absence of knowing that it's dyslexia and making reasonable adjust adjustments, managers will judge that you're either incompetent, lazy, or stupid, or all three. If I, as a manager, if I can think myself way back to when I began, explain something to someone once, and I said, have you got it? And they went, yeah, yeah. And they went away and messed it up. I hope I would have been patient and said, no, that's okay, don't worry. Come and we'll do it again. Not sure how many times I could have done that without thinking something wrong here. Mm. And you know, I've seen that many times and I know intuitively that it happens a lot. There's a, a section in my um, PC report about the importance of induction and that, that really is it. In the even well-meaning managers, in the absence of context and understanding as to why a certain pattern of errors that are almost unavoidable for the dyslexic without reasonable adjustments, the manager will conclude that it's laziness, stupidity, or lack of attention to what you're doing. And that's why so many people end up going down the road of uh, capability, some are even so stupid as to call it disciplinary matters, you, you know, the distinction between capability, you haven't got the competence, or discipline, you, it is misconduct. So I've even seen cases where, where, you know, they're saying failure to hand in a report in time, for example, uh, is misconduct, which is nonsense, but that's 
be where my jaw had. Um, but that's what I said. I believe disclosure is important. However, and if you disclose, you can ask for reasonable adjustments as part of the selection process. Increasingly these days, people have you know one day assessment centers. They have inbox, in tray exercises, uh, all sorts of things where you're put on the spot, and you can ask for reasonable adjustments in those so that you're not disadvantaged. But if you don't disclose, you can't, can't ask for reasonable adjustments. Mm. So sometimes you're not even getting past the starting line. More difficult, so more difficult perhaps in Australia because one, you haven't got those statutory safeguards, and and and, and two, um, I don't know the organisational culture in Australia. I'm not sure if what the percentages would be. You know, I sort of said earlier on, you've got good organisations neutral organizations and bad. And I do believe that it's about a third in each category in the UK, but I'm not sure what that information might be in Australia. And mm. therefore without statutory protection, if you're not disclosing and 50% are, hey, we're businesses, if you can do it, do it. If you can't get out, it might be more prevalent than here. And therefore disclosing is going to mean that you don't even get an interview sort of thing. So, so I'm a little bit reluctant to, to, to not be prescriptive because I'm not being prescriptive, but I'm a little bit reluctant to say that the advice that I would have for a dyslexic person here applying for jobs necessarily transfers over to Australia without me understanding more information about it. Yeah. But what I can say, sorry, yeah, go on. I know that in a job interview, I said that because they always say to you, what are your weaknesses? Which is a ridiculous question because mm. everyone lies. Mm. And I thought, yeah. no, I won't lie. I'll say that I need a bit of support with my writing. And I just said, I just mm. need a bit of extra support with my writing. And I just left it at that. And so mm. uh, when they offered me the job, they reduced the uh, pay. And I said to them, oh, this is not the pay scale that was originally offered. And they said, oh, because you said you needed help with your writing, we're not giving you the pay because we want to see what type of support you really need. And mm. I nearly didn't take the job because I thought if only you knew that I was dyslexic, this is actually discrimination. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, I took the job and ended up, I didn't need that much support and they ended up giving me the pay. Um, and I just finally disclosed to my manager and she turned around and said, I knew there was something wrong with you. And this was in a mental wrong health organisation. And that was her comment. I knew there was something wrong with you. So, I mean, I, I, I feel, see, I've had diagnostic assessments from other countries and students from other countries that you might say, oh, like Italy, for example. And in Italy, the, the diagnostic assessment was more like an assessment for schizophrenia. <laughs> you, you know, it, it was a psychiatrist doing a report and picking up perhaps some of the consequences of growing up dyslexic and the emotional stuff that Sylvia writes about in her book as evidence for an underlying psychosis wow. or schizophrenia. Dreadful. And it was pages and pages of uh, psychiatric tests that were being done, sort of thing. So, so I guess going back to the cultural context, 
it's really worrying to me that in Australia, it's still being considered within a mental health context because you know, Sylvia and I and most other practitioners would say it's not mental health at all. There may be some secondary or tertiary emotional consequences of what dyslexia is, which is principally about processing speed, executive function, uh, and uh, phonology. And those, those are, are doing things, practical skills, and any emotional consequences flow from other people's reaction to the things that the dyslexic has not yet been trained to do properly, in my very firm opinion. Yeah, well, I guess because it's classified as a learning disability, which comes out of the DSM-5, and only psychologists assess at the moment, though my supervisor's a speechy and she says speechies can assess, but generally it's only neuropsychs or clinical uh, ed psychs that assess for funding. So like at university, if I want to get, I get funding, I get support at uni, not funding definitely don't get funding, but I get um, assistance from my doctorate. And when I was doing my master's after I got assessed and diagnosed. Um, So like I get more time if I had to do an essay or if I did an exam, I got extended time and I get um, access to assisted technology through university now. And I'll get some extra support with my doctorate um, as well. So, but you need that clinical or uh, not clinical educational neuropsychology report to access that assistance and there's no actual funding at the moment but if you're at primary school you need that report to get some type of assistance in the classroom even though it's minimal I think you can get a little bit of assistance um so but again it's only for psychologists and so it's within the DSM-5 that it sits why psychologists would assess you is why it's still sure. in that at yeah. the moment. That, that's, why, that's, that's why it's called specific learning difficulties in the UK. Not learning difficulties, but specific learning difficulties to distinguish it from mainstream learning difficulties that are in the DSM. Yeah. Because, you know, the decision was years ago that it isn't within the province of the DSM dyslexia. It's a specific learning difficulty centered around the things that I said, executive function, processing speed, and short-term and working memory. And that, you know, to, to conflate those into learning difficulties uh, and or mental health problems is very firmly wrong. Well, not just in my opinion or Sylvie's opinion, but, you know, that, that's how it is. Yeah. Answering your question about what could I say to dyslexic people because the, the, the cultural fits or lack of fit, I think, rather, it is so vast yeah. because of that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I honestly think that, for example, I, I have done many, many, many workplace needs assessments and Sylvia has done many, many, many diagnostic assessments. So have many others as well. But what I'm saying is that, that I always, I honestly believe that we are simply many, 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 many years ahead, both in thinking about what dyslexia is and about statutory and good practice interventions to assist it. So if I were 
you trying to disseminate this information. And if I were individual people, this isn't a matter of saying, oh, the UK is best. It's a matter of saying we have already, already invented many, many, many wheels to deal with these issues and have made significant progress, although there's plenty more to be done in so doing. And you, you should try and collect all the wheels or, you know, you and others should try and collect all the wheels to, to look, for example, at half a dozen employment appeal tribunal cases in this country and say there is a need for a change in the law. This is what they're doing in the United Kingdom. To look at half a dozen of Sandra's and my workplace needs assessments and say, this is what an assessment should look like in this country and, and, and to hold that up there. And for the individual who, who wants to apply, if, you know, if either they do that research themselves or you and others disseminate that research, they would then have a, a, a script for their interview, a script for their performance that says, I feel I need the following. And a good HR person would be, you know, the other side of that argument so the two would fit together. If, if all of them had read the same EAT cases, the same my PC report and Sylvia's dyslexia in the workplace book, they would be at the same level of knowledge and understand why Again, no point in having just one leg on the stool where it's the dyslexic person being too afraid to say, and maybe you get the occasional bold person who will say, if the people at the other end of the desk are going, well, what's going on here? We don't understand why. We're not paying them that. Let's pay them half the salary and take the money from their, whatever. If people are mutually informed and people are more empowered to put these things forward, uh, you know, there are notes, for example, uh, in uh, one or two websites, like the BDA website, about how to turn the arguing that I am dyslexic at an interview into a positive. And I always did that when I gave careers advice to people. It's not, oh dear, I can't do this. It's because of my dyslexia. One, I have an appetite for hard work. I have worked harder to get my MA, my PhD, or whatever my skill set is. And that shows the appetite that I have. Secondly, uh, I am excellent at assistive technology. You know, I, I can uh, text to speech, speech to text, mind mapping, etc. I've got all of these skills which make my productivity in text production and so on 30% greater than the yeah. average non-dyslexic person. And, and all that stuff's out there over here. And I think that rather than cast advice to individuals about, oh, here are three things I would do in an interview. I, I would say it needs to be more strategic than that, that someone you, someone needs to get a grant to pull together all the material that already exists and that, that then is disseminated so that hopefully that will penetrate HR circles. I used to write magazines for HS. I used to write articles for HR magazines and occupational health magazines you know, rather than try and contact every HR officer or something, over here there's the CIPD, Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. And you know, if you get an article on that, then 50, 60% of the HR managers in the country are going to see it. And I always used to, I mean, back in my TUC report, you'll see that it says, you know, if you want to talk to me, here are my contact details, talk to me sort of thing. So I think that's it. It's capture the good practice, disseminate it, whilst at the same time someone does need to be doing something about the law. Because to tell people with dyslexia that they have got mental health problems, to me, is appalling, utterly appalling. 
sort of thing. And I know that's the status quo at the moment, but it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what, what uh, dyslexia is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the show today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Because I know we're going to do a couple more, um, have a couple more conversations around HR and dyslexia because, mm -hmm. as, we, as you mentioned, there are vast differences between Australia and the UK and we've got lots to learn from what you're doing over there. Yes, sure. I mean... Right. One, let me emphasize, and I, I think that's correct, but let me emphasize this isn't sort of some sort of post-colonial professional superiority. It, it's simply how it is. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm a, a colonial as well. I'm Irish, so, you know, but there's no... We've got lots to learn from the whole world. <laughs> it's not just from the uh, UK. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I've been very lucky to have been mentored by Sylvia Moody, who was a... a Somebody said when you break a mold breaker, you know, Sylvia formed this group and was ahead of her time and has written books because of Sylvia and many others following on from her and Sandra as well. There, there are now lots of good practice out there that answer the questions that you have, and some of those changes are necessary to, to make it happen. I'm just going to say two other things. Um, the, the, the most important one, I think, is that um, HR managers need to be educated. I, when I looked at HR syllabuses, saw nothing about dyslexia. When I looked at psychology syllabuses for under and postgrads doing psychology degrees, uh, there was virtually nothing about dyslexia. And when there was, it had it down as a psychiatric problem. Hmm. And if you believe, I mean, as, as, as someone who right up to the age of 18 was told that I was mentally ill because I was gay, I knew the impact that that could have. And of course, being gay was removed from the DSM very late, but, you know, right about the 1990s sometimes. So, you know, on the Monday, I was uh, psychiatric and mentally ill because I was gay. And on Tuesday, I wasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I yeah. really do make energy for dyslexia. Be, just because it's in the DSM don't mean it's necessarily true. But the impact that that had on me, it took me to my mid-20s to get out of that. And I think it must be as bad, if not worse, for, for people with dyslexia. So campaigning at a political and strategic level, plus capturing good practice, which is then disseminated for both HR and OH practitioners, managers and individuals to, to me is, is, is the medium term solution. And all the books that are around Sylvia's book, my TUC report, Sandra's book at a practical level, because I can, I can understand that people watching this now might go, well, yeah, that's great, Brian, but that's going to take 10 years. What do I do now? There are lots of manuals around. There are lots of books. The British Dyslexia Association website is packed with good advice. And links. So for people at a practical level, the resources that already exist, including the ones that I've mentioned, are, are good solutions today. Well, thank you so much, Brian. All the best. Bye. If you'd like to find out more about Brian and the amazing work he has done, or Sylvie Moody's books and the great and wonderful work that she has developed, please head to the Dear Dyslexic website.
Also, if you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with all the work that we are doing at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there's anything you've heard today that you've found distressing, you can contact Beyond Blue, 1300 224636 or Lifeline 13 1114. Thanks so much for joining us today and until next time, bye for now. Yeah.